Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko, another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or if even if they don't, today is April the 6th, 2022. This is episode 3,069 of the Survival Podcast, uh, about to cross over into 3,070. I like rounded numbers, so I know stuff like that. Anyway, I got Wednesday here for you, so it is an interview day with Dean Dupree. You might know him from his YouTube channel, Survival Tips and Other Stuff. The reason he's on the air is he's been at most of my live streams in the past couple months uh, watching them on YouTube. Ironically, we're not live streaming today because of the quality of his internet connection. We just have the audio only for you today. Um, but I was chatting back and forth with him, and John Willis said, you got to have this guy on the air. Now, when John Willis tells me I should have somebody on the show, I generally have that person on the show, and that's what we got today. We're going to talk about the survival and prepper mentality as it relates to growing up back when Dean and I grew up, the 70s and the 80s, and growing up in rural areas and without the best childhood as well. I'm dealing with injuries, uh, stupid things kids used to do back then, but how it taught them things, and that's how they knew how to do things. Uh, we're going to talk about fishing. We're going to talk about trapping. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. It was a really great conversation I had with Dean, and I'll have him on in just a moment for you. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is the Wealth Studying Podcast with John Pugliano. You know, you're going to hear us talk about how uh, me and Dean today talked about how people don't know how to do things anymore and kind of what's been lost from a skill set. You know, John Pugliano with the Wellsteading Podcast and InvestableWealth.com, he's not just a, an investment manager, okay? It's not the only thing. This, this guy's one of us. He is a prepper from way back. I first met him at a prepper convention in Salt Lake City, Utah, back in 2010. He's been part of the community for that long. Uh, this is a guy, he was a, a United States Marine at one time. He's a ham-certified radio operator, uh, reloader, shooter, and a real prepper. And he has just a switched-on mind for how to manage your investments. And you want to learn more about that, get on over to thewellsteading.com. And that's where you'll learn all about the Wellsteading podcast and everything else that John does. Again, he is a great podcaster and a wonderful financial manager as well. Next up today is Start 9 Embassy Servers. You're going to hear us beat up on technology a little bit today, but both Dean and I use it because it's wonderful. The problem is that... Literally everything you do today online, somebody's watching it, somebody's recording it, somebody's making a record of it, and all the data you think is your data in the cloud, there is no cloud. There's just somebody else's computer. You can change all of that by running your own server. And I know what you're thinking. This is way too complicated. I don't need a data comm closet in my house. Well, the first time I heard of Start 9 servers myself, uh, being an old telco guy, the first thing I thought of was a closet somewhere with a big tower computer in it and a concentrator and a repeaters and all that stuff going on, a fiber optic cable running up the next floor or whatever. The Start 9 server is about literally the size of a deck of cards. It does take a little effort to go through the learning process, but it's not that hard, and it's kind of step-by-step step and go through it. And you can take control of your data and your privacy starting now. 
at startnine.com to learn more. And if you are an MSB member, their discount will pay for your membership for like two, three years or more, depending on the options you choose, because it's that big. It is the best discount that they've ever given anywhere. They're a great supporter of the show. Check them out today at startnine.com. Then just one more thing before I bring Dean on. Remember, you can always help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And item of the day I have for you today is called Sacred 7 Mushroom Extract Powder. Now, this is, you might figure it out, seven different mushrooms. And these are the mushrooms that have had the most scientific research done for their anti-cancer properties. And I have always been fascinated with the world of mushrooms, both just as a mushroom forager and someone that's like a connoisseur of eating them, but also their medicinal value. And I learned about this product from Nurse Amy of Doc Bones and Nurse Amy, the expert counsel. And she sent me a link along with it on research done into six of these seven mushrooms on anti-cancer properties. And I read that. It's thick. And I read the whole thing. Looked up the words I didn't understand. And when I got done with it, I looked at the price per day of using this stuff. I ordered it, and I stay on it. And every morning, I put a little bit of it in my first cup of coffee. You don't even taste it. It's such a small amount. It comes out to cents a day. And does it prevent cancer? First of all, I couldn't say it does if I believed it. The research I've, I saw was amazing. And anything that'll help in this world that you can you can you know have for about thirty five cents a day, that to me is what you call insurance that's so cheap you can't afford not to have it. I love this stuff. I've been using it for a, for almost since the beginning of COVID because it was. The, the role these also play in preventing cytokine storms that made Amy get it for bones because he's older and he's got some pre-existing conditions and COVID had just started and all. So I thought it was interesting when she sent it to me for that purpose. But when I looked at the anti-cancer properties, that's why I put it into my life. And I think if you check it out, you'll want to do the same thing. And again, it's just one of those things that's too cheap not to because one bag of this stuff lasts me and my wife 335 days out of a year, almost a full year. And it's just, like I said, at that price, it just makes sense to have it in your life. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and jump on into it and uh, bring Dean on. Hey, Dean, how you doing, man? Welcome to the Survival Podcast. All right, folks, and with that, I want to say, hey, Dean, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. How are you today, Jack? Good, man. Glad to have you on. We're going to be talking about survival and prepping more from uh, – kind of a bushcrafting world today than we typically do. Um, I want to start out with, though, can you give us a little bit about your background? I know you do a really cool uh, YouTube channel called Survival Tips and Other Stuff. Uh, you're on the show because you're recommended by John Willis over at SOE, and if, if he recommends somebody, I generally would have him on. Uh, How did you get into doing all that? How did you get like started down this rabbit hole? Uh, actually, I got started because – that's where we were, man, in our life. It was uh, just part of it, like that song, Born on the Bayou. I literally thought that song was about me. I was born in a, on the bayou, literally on a bayou in Louisiana, and just started out from there with muddy feet and trapping turtles and squirrels and pigs and ducks and beavers and all kind of shit and building V-duck traps into the side. My dad was kind of a, uh, let's say he was shady, you know, but we never went without food, ever, ever. 
So that makes me uh, think of a it, song. I can't think of what it is. House of the Rising Sun, when you say my dad was kind of shady. <laughs> and Louisiana. I literally, I literally thought that was about him, man. Because, <laughs> you know, we had family in New Orleans. And, yeah. you know, the family from New Orleans was colorful, buddy. There was, when the, when the family reunion was held in New Orleans, buddy, it was always good. Somebody was going to jail. Cops were getting called. You'd have to run down the bio or whatever. You know, it was, it was great. It was a great childhood. So we had a saying up in Appalachia, the family that drinks together goes to jail together. <laughs> oh yeah. Hey, great funny story, man. I'm taking my kids back to my home place for the first time and I'm excited. You know, I'm like, Hey, you know, this is where so and so happened and that's where so and so got shot and that's where, you know, dad was in a knife fight on that corner and, and then we got to the, we got to the intersection where the jail was and I go, and that's where daddy lived. It just came out, man. And my wife just turned and looked like, what in the heck have I got into, man? But they loved it. They just took right to it. We went to the bow and to the um, the lake down there. And, dude, they were all in it. They Steve Irwin was there. You know, they were into that all kind of damn animals and stuff in my house. 45-pound loggerhead snapping turtle. When you get up at 4 o'clock to go get, take a bath to go to work, and there's a 45-pound snapping turtle they put in the bathtub and you're naked and you rip the the sheet back you know the shower curtain back and go to step in uh, which you got dangling and the turtle's neck will go like three foot just pow i was almost <laughs> castrated that morning that morning was almost castrated i was like you little son of guns <laughs> oh man yeah so did you ever have kind of like a thing you can look back on and think it was kind of like a aha moment with survival and bushcrafting and stuff like that uh yeah the you know the survival mode and 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 not being able to rely on other people i was about seven years old uh you know my dad he was native american big huge hands green eyed black hair uh did not need to drink alcohol at all and he would go stay off for long periods of time, you know, working you know, pipelines and stuff overseas and all around the world. And he'd come home and he'd buy a new house. He'd buy everybody a car. He just, you know, and then it would be gone in six months. He had to do it again. But, uh, there was one night I woke up and I don't know if they knew I was home, but, uh, there was some things going on in the kitchen. I came in, and, you know, my mom was laying on the ground and she wasn't moving and, he was still, he was, you know, in the process of doing some domestic violence stuff. So I had to go get 410 and I came put a shell in it, come around the corner. And when I cocked it back, he heard that and he left. And I was like, man, that, you know, that was a hard thing to do, but you know, I can't let him kill my mom. So, uh, that's when I realized that these people that I thought had my safety and everything, I was like, man, they're just winging this shit. Excuse my language, but you know, they're just winging this. So that, that started me on a road of gathering as much information as I could from the older generation. And I was fortunate enough to have a, a, a great grandpa that was still alive that was like, Hey, come here, man. Let me, let me, let me show you this. And he started showing me how to make traps, how to grow things that the, you know, the native 
American way, which is totally different than Three Sisters. That's the first thing I learned. Uh, corn, peas, and squash together. Uh, he had this really cool uh, thing that he did in the summer. He would take a uh, corn husk and dig a hole, and he would put, you know, two stacks of them, about 10 each, and he would fill it up with water and then put the dirt over the top of it so his corn is, would, would make it through those just drought days in Louisiana. And he was like the only one his plants lived during that. And uh, the corn cob acted like a sponge. So he wouldn't have to water a whole lot. And I just thought, man, this guy really knows what's going on. So, so I guess that first was talk, he was pretty much he was pretty much taking the husks for, for the ears off each stock and using them next year for the next stock. Yeah, he would, like, when they would get through, uh, they would let it go to dry, and then they would twist the corn off instead of yeah. cutting it like people do. Making he would tw- They would twist that off, and he had a little thing built. And I wished I, we would have had cameras back then, but, you know, but anyway. So he would take the actual uh, cob itself when it dried, and then he oh, okay. would put them in the bottom of the hole, and it would become a sponge. It was hmm. really cool, man. No, that's, and the that little fish. Cool. Yeah, the little fish. He would, we would go catch little fish, brim, you know, minnows, whatever it was, and he'd drop it at the bottom of the hole and plant his tomato plants and other things he grew. And when the um, tap root would get to that fish, it decomposed. It had enough time, and uh, bam, they would just top out really good. It was cool. We're so. Done got more information from him yeah absolutely so you, you your great-granddad was was he the person that you kind of learned the most about survival and bushcrafting from or was he maybe just the first person to kind of take you through that gateway he was really he was one of the first persons that that showed me there was another way to live other than off the tip of society the government that you didn't need all them other people and you didn't need a Walmart or well, Ben Franklin's or, you know, one of those things back in the older days, you didn't need that, uh, that you could do it yourself and you could make whatever you needed yourself. And, uh, there was another guy, a uh, scout master I had, he was pretty cool. He was an old hand. Um, he was a Vietnam vet. And he got shrapnel and stuff. He was kind of tripped out and he would drink on our, you know, everybody in Louisiana drinks. So I'm just going to put that out there. So, yeah. So anyway, yeah, they're I've all drunk. There. I know. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's just, you're just part of it. But he was, uh, he, he would nip on the bottle or whatever, but he would always go, Hey, come here and watch this. And then he would show you which rocks you could use, like Flint. See how the light shines off this? That's Flint. And he'd hit it. And then, you know, he, he was the first person that showed me how to make char claw. Uh, the first person that taught me how to nap. Uh, my granddad could do that. He worked more with stone. He would make like, uh, plows and stuff. He taught me how, what, what tree to look for to make a plow. Like what tree to look for in the shape of the tree. And he was more into shaping trees before they became big. He would, he's where on my place, I do that. I tie them and, and, you know, and make so I can have certain shapes without doing a lot of work. You just have to wait for them to grow up. But it, yeah, it was, it was cool, man. That was where it all started. 
Got you, man. I mean, what part of Louisiana are you from? You said you grew up on the bayou, but, like, I have a, a good friend of mine named Brad that I spent a lot of time with. He was an Army buddy, and we spent a lot of time with his family. And we were down near, like, uh, Lake Charles. He was from Pickering, kind of over toward the Beaumont yeah. side. Uh, but southern Louisiana. And I kind of sounds like you're from at least the southern part of the state where it's more swampy and jungly and what have you. Well, it's kind of... I would say, like, all right, so when your dad works for Brown and Root, you live wherever Brown and Root goes. And they were all over Louisiana. So you had the gas fields up north and even, you know, over toward Vivian and, and stuff like that. And then you had into middle uh, Mississippi around the instep of Louisiana, so to speak. Okay. And then you had around church. It, it, when he was offshore, it was Church Point and, uh, Things like that, Kenner, Laplace, whatever you at. So it was kind of all of it, man. So I got it, you know, at the top of Louisiana, it's kind of like East Texas. Yeah. It's kind of hilly and pine forest. You know, it's all kind of the same, this latitude. But as you get down, you get into the salt water part of it. So you get a really good, um, I don't know what, what to say. You get a really good sample of what you kind of need. The only thing I didn't have was the cold weather, you know, survival stuff. Um, and then we got, I got some of that when we went up into the uh, Ozarks and stuff. But uh, it's really from all over, man. You know, started around uh, Morehouse Parish, uh, Union Parish, Washita Parish, and then it's around Plaquemine. And, you know, and we had 10 folks down there. We had 10 folks in uh, southern Mississippi, too. So it was just this broad spectrum. And now I live in Texas, so, yeah, it, it's a broad spectrum. Oh, so you're, uh, you're, you're a, a Texas neighbor now. You're, you're in my backyard. Um, I, I always find it interesting, you know, if you tell somebody that's not from Texas, that you're from Texas, they're like, well, I got this friend. He lives in Texas. Maybe you know him. And you're like, I, I, I don't understand how Texas works. I go yeah. the tip of Texas and move it to where the Red River is. Texas touches Canada, and it goes that long the other way too. And it's kind of funny. People think, "Well, you're from Texas. He's from Texas." And I, I'm, yeah, but yeah. I was really brought that up is like Southern Louisiana is a is a hell of a place for bushcrafting. There is, I've always said, you drop me off in the mountains, and I can survive. But if you drop me off in a swamp, I'm gonna get fat. I mean, like, yeah, I, exactly. you, you're going to have plenty to eat. Like, it is just, if you know what you're doing, you almost can't go hungry in the swamps. Yeah, the main thing that I I really learned from those people down there, that side of the family, or, or down there, we call them the down there. So the down <laughs> there, um, the thing that, like, the, the mosquitoes down there will fight over you to take you back to feed to their children. <laughs> Yeah. So these mosquitoes, like the, we call them three slappers. You got to slap them three <laughs> times before you kill them or knock them off your arm. Then they get mad at you and cut you. So these mosquitoes on you. And then you had, uh, you know, old Shad would say, Hey, come here, baby. Let me, and they always call you baby. Come here, baby. And then she'd take this, uh, like dog fennel and some other stuff she had. She'd rub it all over you because you didn't wear clothes down there. You was almost naked, you know, with shorts or something. <laughs> 
And so they just rub you down with this dog fennel. You'd be green, but, but the bugs wouldn't bite you. Yeah. Or to rub your gumbo. You can rub gumbo mud on you too. That black mud. Yeah. Uh, it's hard for them to get to it. There's a lot so of, in all of this, things down there. So in all this, I'm sure you've developed some different forms of hunting and trapping. What, what is kind of your go-to or your favorite in that world? Uh, a bow. Okay. A, a bow or a spear. I, I mean, started out on gun uh, with a 22. You know, my grandmother was the one that taught me how to shoot a 22. The old Remington load from the, the back of the stock, you know. Uh, and then my grandfather was a, a great grandfather was the one that taught me how to make a bow out of a sapling, you know, and it was good enough to kill a armadillo or something or a bird or, you know, wouldn't penetrate a deer maybe. But, uh, if you, you would carry your string in your pocket, you didn't have to carry the bow. You would carry a string in your pocket and it would be a hay rope. And then he taught me how to bend that and, and cut the notches. That's the most important thing because when you pull it back, something, you know, it come off. So you got to get your bend right and your notches on the end. And then finding arrows with cedar trees or cane. Uh, cane grow, grows everywhere over there. So you get them little young cane. You dry them out. You can shoot them. You can shoot them green, but sometimes they'll splinter on you. That's interesting because I've always said that when it comes to the stuff that you need, in, in bush, one of the most difficult to create for yourself is a cutting tool. And then the next most difficult or probably as difficult is cordage. And that's kind of like, if you have those two things, most other things you can, you can kind of fabricate on the fly and you can make cordage. It just takes time. You know what I mean? You can take stuff like yucca and you can make really great cordage out of it. It just per foot. It's a, it's a lot of time investment. Yeah, it really is. And also the inner, the inter, um, membrane of bark, uh, when you get it, it, you know, like hemp, they made ropes out of hemp forever. You can't tear that stuff. No. And it's the key, the key to it is learning how to braid and uh, manipulate yeah. your fingers. And so I have a stone that I found and it took me a while and I, I was looking at it first, you know, it looked just like a, uh, like a fishing weight. Uh, that went on the bottom of a seine they used. And then I got to looking at it and I seen where they tried to make a hole in the center also. And then it dawned on me that they're, they're stripping cordage. Uh, when you get either whatever you're using, the inner of the bark or whatever, you split it and make three. And then to keep from wearing your fingers out, this, this rock fits perfect in your hand and the cordage will go through the three holes in your four fingers. The open. Okay. So you put you put those three in there, and then you pull it, and it won't wear your hands out, and it it, it shapes it, uh, shaves it, and gets it just right, and then you then you put the braid on it. And this is something you found I'll this say, tool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the one that my granddad used was made out of wood, but this was made out of looked like iron ore, and so mm. I got to study. And there's a video of it. On, uh, on my channel. Uh, I didn't go into it a lot, but yeah, but yeah, that's it. I'll send you a picture of it, man. It's really cool. Okay, cool. It Very cool. It really is. What about trapping? I've always seen that as like when it comes to bushcraft survival, kind of the, 
way up in the hierarchy because if I'm out hunting something, I have to find it, stalk it, and kill it, and I have to do it. But if I set traps, I can set two traps, ten traps, a hundred traps, and they work while I'm sitting on my butt figuring out what to do with the rest of my existence. Exactly. It gives you time to do the other things that you need. Uh, say you're preparing your campsite or your cleaning animals and preparing the hides. Uh, so yeah, the traps are, that's, that's the best way. Plus they're quiet. You know, everybody talks about, you, you hear these, I hate to call them idiots, but they are. Oh, I got 5,000 rounds and I'm going to hunt whenever this thing goes to mess. I'm going to hunt. No, they're idiots. You can call them idiots. Yeah. Well, there you go. You said it's totally acceptable to call those people idiots. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I'm thinking you go ahead and fire that rifle, shit. You hear me? Because when you fire that rifle, we're going to come take it from you. And then you're going to work for me. (laughs) That's kind of the way I look at it. My, My people told me when I was a kid, you never shoot twice. Never. You miss it the first time, that's God's critter. You never <laughs> shoot twice. Because the Indians will find you. The other you know, will find you. you shoot twice, they'll zoom in on you. you know, there's a lot of overlap with that thinking. For instance, uh, one of my good friends is a fishing guide down in Florida. And we go out and we go, you know, a couple, six miles out off to the reef and we have a lot of fun fishing out there, but we've talked about this stuff. And he said, you know, if you're in a, if it's a survival mode, I'm not driving six miles in my boat and burning all that fuel. He said, the number one way I could gather food quickly is shellfish and a cast net. Right. I mean, that's, yep. that's right there. I mean, you know, and it might not be the biggest stuff or whatever, but you know, when a, that dude throws a freaking 14 foot net, I don't know how he does it without breaking his back, but you know, that type of mentality of quiet, quick, efficient, and gone, right? I think that's something that yes. a lot of these loudmouths do not understand. No, and, and you don't know what you don't know. So that's they true. think that that's all they know is I buy a deer tag, I go out once a year, I kill a slick head, I bring it home, and they beat their chest and go, look at me, I'm the great white hunter. And I'm like, no, dude, that you just, you know, you, you, you did something. You went to Walmart, essentially. You went to Walmart and got a deer. <laughs> uh, but the traps and, and what you just said about the cast net. I have five cast nets in my shop right now. One of the greatest things was my, uh, the grandfather on my mother's side could tie nets. He made gill nets and he, he taught me how to, Weave and tie those nets. And the main thing is make, is, is ending that to make the edge of them and to make a cast net, make the center, put your strings in there, get your counterweights. Uh, really, really cool stuff growing up on the Washtenaw River around Monroe. That's where he was at. He was, he lived right on the river. Uh, well, actually north of Sterlton, around Sterlington, north of Monroe in a little town called Sterlington. Sterlington. We called it Sterlington. But yeah, it was it was a fishing community, totally different mindset. You know why I like people like you that run channels like you do so much is that there's so many of these things, and I just don't consider myself that old. I'm 50 years old, and I know when I talk about the 80s, I think back to when it was the 80s, and my parents would talk about the 60s and how long ago that sounded, 
and how the 80s are a lot further from today than the 60s were from the 80s. So I get when people think it's a long time ago, but it really wasn't. And, like, I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and you couldn't find a 12-year-old boy that couldn't throw a cast net. I mean, no. if you would have just threw a rock and hit somebody and said, boy, boy, come over here. Here's a cast net. Show me how to throw it. He'd pick up and throw it. I mean, just about any kid that grew up there knew how to throw a cast net. Now you go to the beach, you watch a guy. You can tell he bought the cast net yesterday. And yeah. he can't throw it. <laughs> and there's more than one way to do it, but he doesn't know any of them. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. Jacksonville was big on the, the one weight in the mouth throw, and everybody swore to God they knew somebody that knew somebody that knew somebody who lost their teeth doing it, but nobody ever yeah. actually knew somebody that did, right? Like, you know, I mean, yeah. and, and it just, it, there's so many things like that. Like when I started doing the, the show back in 08, I'd talk about stuff and people would come to me and go, well, I didn't know how to do that when I was a kid and I never learned. And it, it really didn't dawn on me. That, and I don't know how old you are. You look like you're somewhere in my age range, but kind of yeah, like just a little bit Gen, more. The, the like the the older Gen X is kind of like the last group that came up, and this all this was just things that you just did. You know what I mean? It was yeah. just what you did. It's what you learned. And if you didn't, ha- and people are like, well, my dad didn't teach me or whatever. Like, but it wasn't always your dad or your uncle or your grandpa. A lot of it was just like. You guys went out and figured it out. Like somebody else's dad taught him and then he taught you and then, you know, you taught his brother and like it was just people, kids just went out and figured shit out. And by the time you were grown up, there was a thousand things you could do if you needed to. You could, you know, you could do basic car maintenance. Like you knew which end of a wrench went up. Like, and I think it's important for people in our kind of that age bracket, a little older than me, a little younger than me to document this stuff. So that the next yes. generation doesn't lose it because what I've realized, and I didn't know this when I was a kid, it's only about probably 30% of us that grew up this way. We didn't know it because if you were in that 30%, you were pretty much surrounded by other kids that did. You know what I mean? And you didn't realize, like, just over yeah. there, they don't have a freaking clue what's going on at all. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, and, and what I liked about having um, – we called them newbies or, or new boots. You know, what, what good thing about that was they didn't know the stuff that you knew. So you could say, hey, man, will you walk over here towards me? And as soon as they just started walking, then whap, they got hit with a booby trap you and your other buddy just made, you know. And, but, and you taught them, you know, and for forever from then on, they looked for that patch of pine straw that didn't fit. You know, it's like down the trail, whack, and it get hit in the face, and everybody laugh, and they get mad. You might get in a fist fight over it or something like that, but you were buddies when you got through. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of, yeah. Now, there was a Good lot days, of that man. whole just figure stuff out thing going on. My, my buddy, I used that term loosely when I was in high school. He stole the net off a high school batting cage. We had this huge net. We didn't know what to do with it. And then we were watching Mutual of Omaha's Not Wild Kingdom at my grandmother's. And they made this net go up in the air with explosives and with weights and go over the some kind of birds or something in Africa. And me and him are just sitting there, and we just all of a sudden, like, lock eyes, like, I got an idea. Next thing you know, we're rigging up freaking blasting caps we stole (laughs) from the Redding Company, um, pipes, 
and uh, cast iron window weights, the old windows that you would open up and they had the counterbalance weights, like old busted oh, yeah. were all like, you know, I'm not talking about stealing here. I'm talking about houses that were abandoned a hundred years ago. And, but you know, yeah. you'd go through them and you find what you could salvage and take to the scrap yard. Well, we figured out we could take those cast iron weights that we used to take in the scrap yard and make freaking launchers out of them. And we never caught nothing with it, but it did work and we didn't lose our fingers. Right. And I, I, I imagine today this would cause the ATF to be roping in and out of helicopters and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, growing up yeah. like that, you, you learned a certain reverence for things that could harm you. And this buddy of mine came close to killing himself a few times. He was, you know, he was the guy that when he said, well, don't worry about it, you said, well, then we're going to back off like 100 yards while you do this. Because right? yeah. you, you, you knew there was no talking him out of it. But the rest yeah. of us, you know, we kind of thought before we acted and, you know, we figured stuff out. We learned how to make a fire yeah. using a bullet, right? You know, you pull the bullet, you take some of the powder out, you throw a piece of cloth in it, you shoot it at a rock, you pick it up, you blow on it, you ignite the powder, and boom, you got a fire. Like, the way we figured that out is we're like, this would probably work. Let's see if it works without blowing ourselves up. And, you know, yeah, I think exactly right. get freaked out if you talk like that today, but... With this exception of this one buddy who never real like never ended up in the hospital but got close a bunch of times. With the exception of him, no one else really got hurt or nothing. Not bad. Yeah. You know, you were just talking about that when you and your buddy were sitting there and watched uh Mutual of Omaha, you know, Wild Kingdom. That, that was the show back in the day, man. Or Marty Stauffer on on PBS. But yeah, we were sitting there one time and we were watching a uh I can't, I think it was, uh, two mules for sister Sarah with Clint Eastwood. All right. Well, he gets shot with an arrow and he, he tells, uh, the lady, the one that acted like a nun, he goes, he shaved the arrow off and he put the black powder on there to cauterize the wound inside him. He's like, all right, now you're going to light that and pull it through. And me and my buddy had the exact same moment. We turned and looked at each other. And, and I was like, well, I, you know, I'm thinking, well, I don't really want to stick one in me and do that and see if it works. And he didn't want to do it either. So then we get the newbie. We're like, hey, man, <laughs> you <laughs> try to work. talk him into. Yeah. Hey, man, let me see if this. So end up, you know, and then we're like, all right, we're not going to do that to anybody just out of the blue. But the first one that gets cut, we're trying it, you know. So we had an old nitro shell 12 gauge on my dad's 12, you know, the one that shot black powder, the nitro shells, the big yeah. the master's barrel. And so we're like, we're just waiting on somebody to get hurt. And I'm not sure if my buddy set him up, but this, he went out and it came back with a newbie and he's like, Hey man, he cut his foot. And I'm like, Oh really? You know, <laughs> so we take him. We take him to the fort and there's, you know, there it is. It just happened, you know, we're by Providence. There was this black powder shell. And so we're like, Hey man, it's going to hurt for a little bit. Bite on the stick. And, but it's a cure you because you can die. Yeah. We saw it in a movie. It'd be fine. You know, and these are like, yeah. you know, 10, 11 year old kids, you know, we're like, all right, man. And brother, I'm going to tell you something. That kid was not the fastest one in the group. But when we lit that black powder on his foot, he wasn't worried about his foot hurting no more. That sucker took off. We never did see that kid again. I, well, that's not later on. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it did work. We did get, you know, information back that, you know, it, it did cauterize the wound. So we put that in our book, you know, use that. 
you, you mentioned that 22 is kind of what you started with with your grandmother. Is that kind of the first exposure you had to the world of weaponry? Yeah, that one, um, that 22, and she would buy me, she would buy me a box of short, 22 short, because you could get more in it. You know, you, you had more, and it doesn't take, people think, oh, I need a 5,000 magnum to kill a deer. No, I could shoot a deer in the eye or the ear and kill it with a 22 short by, you know, by getting the right spot. So the 22 short was really the first one. Uh, I did pellet gun was not the first gun. It was that. And a four, then I got an H and R, uh, single shot 410. And then I still got that gun and I love it. I still, I squirrel hunt with it to this day. Doesn't have a front sight on it. I don't need one. I've shot it so many times. I just look at the squirrel, throw up, bam, it's gone. I am and, a uh, fan of the 410, especially, especially for squirrel hunting. You know, you might take a mm-hmm. shot at one running through the tree or something, but it's more of a setup shot and like wing, you know, wing shooting or whatever. And I think one of the things people don't know about the 410, if you hit center of pattern, if you hit the same amount of pellets in an animal, it's actually more deadly on birds and small game than a 12 gauge because the payload so light, it actually has a higher muzzle velocity. So it's got less shot. Absolutely. But it actually has about a hundred to 150 feet per second, depending on the load advantage over a 20 or a 12. And that's why when you see a really skilled guy knocking ring necks down at 35 yards with one, that's, that's why it's got that little extra oomph to it. That's exactly right. And it, it'll go a little further. You know, when they, they came out with that big, long green shell, the three-incher. Man, that was yeah. like – I only got a box of those during Christmas. The rest of the time, it was a little two-and-three-quarter Winchester red shell. But at Christmas, I got the green ones, man, or a box of slugs, and that was awesome because it's almost like a 30-30. And so yeah. um, I would take those green shells, and that's the only gun I had. So whenever we went um, shooting, you know, bird wing shooting and stuff, and they would laugh at me with my 410 and stuff until they shot five, six times with the 12 gauge. And then I popped that sucker out of the air with a 410 and they shut up. Yeah. So my that, first I shotgun like was, a, my first shotgun was a single shot Sears and Roebuck 20 gauge. And I think I was 11 and that thing beat the crap out of you because they don't weigh nothing. Right. And if you're throwing mm-hmm. high brass 20 gauge into a shotgun that weighs about six pounds and you, you got a kid's 11, I was, I was pretty big for 14, but I was pretty small for 11. That was kind of my point where I jumped up and I, but I, I'd still shoot it like it didn't matter. I mean, I, at the end of the day, black and blue shoulder, black and blue cheek from not having this cheek weld right or whatever. And, but yeah, I mean, I, I kind of yeah. wish I still had that gun. That one disappeared somewhere off in the family. I have a kind of a family background. Not necessarily as bad as yours, but not much better either. So there is a lot of theft between family members, including kids. That's kind of shitty. An adult to steal from a kid is pretty shitty. I'll just leave it at that. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you pro- you've done a lot of bushcrafting and stuff like that. Is there kind of a most difficult or more most stressful place that you've explored as far as getting by? Like I said, you know, in the swamps, you got mosquitoes and heat, but you ain't going to go hungry and you can find water easy enough. Like, is there a particular area or climate type or any situation you've been in that's been more difficult or most difficult? Um, 
Yeah, I try to I tried to stick, you know, where I was hunting to, you know, that was more familiar. Uh, but I would say like the desert. That was that was a that was a totally different deal, man. Because um, like none of my people knew how to get by there, and so it was a different, a whole different thing. Uh, just the fact of keeping your mouth shut, uh, your nose, the 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 amount of water that you lose out of your body just by breathing every time. Uh, that that was a that was a different deal there. That was a totally different deal. Whole different trapping method too. You know, the figure four with the deadfall, that was pretty much, you know, what it had. Yeah. Yeah. Um what what do you consider like top EDC item? You know, I, I've talked to people all the time, well my EDC is this and that and whatever, and I'm like, Okay, let me see it. I ain't got it. Well you don't have an EDC, you have a an SDC. Sometimes carry, right? Like sometimes they carry like Stuff that you really do carry all the time. Yeah, which really beats an STD because you don't want to carry that with you. <laughs> uh, uh, I carry, I carry, uh, I carry a sidearm with me. I carry a multi-tool. I carry a pocket knife. I carry a big lighter. Uh, inside my wallet, you know, I have some credit card looking, uh, things to do that. Um, and anytime, at any time, I have usually on me a medical kit, a severe trauma penetrating chest wound, abdominal, large artery uh, kit from what happened to me uh, on the job that, you know, ended my career. Uh, but before that, being a Boy Scout, that prepared me, you know, that always be prepared motto, uh, that that really prepared me. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to be able to build fire. Uh, have some sort of cutting instrument, and I think pliers are important. That's why I carry a multi-tool. Um, I want to be able to start a fire, build a shelter, make any kind of wood joints that I need to. And I think it's important, guys, if you're getting a multi-tool, get one that has a small saw on it. I've got a Leatherman, some kind, I don't know what it is, because I didn't really care what the name was. I searched out until I found this this uh, one that had a small saw on it uh, because you can cut a bone with it. Uh, you can cut notches in your wood to make joints uh, when you're building shelter or traps or you're building some type of splint to put on your leg. Um, so that that's that's one of the, the main things that, you know, I, I, I really stress to people is have a multi-tool on you. Uh, I agree with I that. Also carry, I carry a magnifying glass wrapped in silk in my wallet just in case I need to, uh, if the sun's out, you know, I can make a fire or, or do whatever I need to. Uh, that was something we learned in the Boy Scouts was to use a, a magnifying glass to start, start a fire. There's other uses for that too. Like getting shit out of your fingers when it's too tiny to actually see that's, that's, that's really useful yep. too. Um, on a multi-tool, I've gone to carrying a Leatherman Wave, and I completely agree with you about a saw blade. And the reason I went to that is it's very compact. And what I found was carrying a standard size multi-tool, there's a lot of times it didn't end up in my EDC because you end up with a bat belt, or if you put it in your pocket, it's like carrying around a brick. And that wave, you carry that like it's like carrying any liner lock pocket knife. You know, it's it's just awesome. 
And so I, I need to add that to my T-SPAS catalog, I think, uh, for people because that once I started carrying that, I'm like, I don't know why I wasn't using one of these forever. Um, yeah. And in, in my vehicle, I carry, uh, I carry enough stuff in my vehicle to, to be able to survive for 30 days, food, water, clothing, tarp, you know, whatever I need to build and medical kits. Um, and another thing I have in there is a silky saw. Um, it's man, that thing works so good. If I'm going to build a large structure, you can make uh, wood joints with it and learn how to lash. Like we were talking about cordage a while ago, and I wanted to come back to that because that is something that's so important. Me and you both right now, I'm looking on this screen. We both have something on right now that's made out of cordage. Right there. You, you don't realize it. it's just little bitty cordage. It, it's clothing. You mm -hmm. can take any type of sheet or whatever. You can uh, make your slices. And then every time you braid it, it increases the strength more and more and more. So you make a, a four braid cord. Well, if you make four, four braid cords and then braid those, you can pull your truck with it. I seen some inmates put, uh, take sheets and it was cool how they did it because they only took about an inch off of every sheet in the facility and they made a rope long enough for all of them to get off the top of a four story building. And it didn't show up. Nobody ever, nobody they took ever such little it, pieces. Man. So yeah, because yes. yep. if one sheet is gone, every, they'll know it. But they took one Man, inch off of every sheet. The shit I've seen and heard from people that end up in the pokey, you just sit and think, you know, if you'd have used your brain like this before you got in there, you probably never would have ended up in there in the first place. Exactly. <laughs> I, wor I worked in facility and, uh, man, there were some of the smartest guys I've ever met in there. Now, now there were some just gross, you know, evil yeah. people, but the yeah. majority of them, they just screwed up. Was that the wrong place at the wrong time? The majority were drunk, you know, and ran into a fire hydrant and then run naked because their girlfriend left them, you know, something like that. But like I seen this guy, one of the coolest things I've ever seen in there was he made a tattoo gun. Out of the old big pen, a button, the motor off of a cassette tape. Um, what else did he have on there? And a guitar string. He took the ball out of that big pen, which has ink in that barrel, right? Yeah. He stuck that, he stuck the guitar string down in there and somehow he bent that guitar string into a 90 where it wouldn't break. Cause if you know about guitar strings, they'll, they'll break when you get them to a certain point. I don't know yeah. how he did it, but anyway, he takes the button, heats up the guitar string and puts it through there, melts the button onto the motor, hooked up some wires he stole out of somewhere and, and made it where the guitar string would oscillate through that opening of the big pen. And he was doing a tattoo and I was like, man. And he goes, Oh, he said, Oh, you ain't going to get me. Are you? And I said, man, if you wouldn't have just been doing it right out here in the middle, maybe not, but. I said, yeah. where'd you get this? And he, he goes, I made it. And I was like, that is so freaking cool, man. So I yeah. sat there for like 20 minutes checking it out. And I really hated to take it from him. I'm like, man, this is so cool. And that's when I had the discussion. I was like, dude, if you would just apply this on the outside, man, you know, you wouldn't be in here. But uh, yeah, 
There was yeah. There was some there was some good people in there, but the ingenuity when you are when you are isolated and that's all you have is time, your mind will begin to work in ways you don't know. You will start innovating things. Uh, you have a lot of time on your hands to do that. Uh, so I apply it to this the same way. I think that this this society that we're in now, whoever's in charge has succeeded in taking away people's um, focus. They're, they're constantly distracted by that little device that goes, ding, ding, so they can't hold a thought very long. So I take mine and just put it up and then I go outside and do what I got to do because I need that. I need that mind clear, you know, when I'm doing stuff. There I really think day, that's a problem. There isn't the day that I do this podcast that I don't put everything down for 30 minutes and walk before I come back and do it so that my mind is in the right place. Because even when you're just working and getting productive things done, your brain does not focus the way that it really is supposed to as a human being when you're constantly engaged in these electronic devices. And it's it's worse than that, though, because it's not just the electronic devices. It's You know, I had John and Nicole on yesterday, and we were talking about if you go go to Walmart on the 1st or the 15th and you look around, you want to cry. You look at the state of your nation and you just want to like, like it's, it's depressing, you know, and then at the same time. Okay. So, and then you're more dealing with a lower economic demographic there in general, right? Especially around the first of the 15th. And then you, you go to like, you, you watch these people that go to like high end expensive colleges with very privileged young people and talk to them. And not only are they stupid, they also don't know anything. You can be stupid and know things. We all knew some guy that was stupid and he legitimately was like, he couldn't do math. You know, you could fool him any way you wanted to, but if your car was broke down and you gave him a screwdriver and a pair of pliers and some bailing wire, he'd rebuild your carburetor. Right. So he was, even though he was stupid, he could do things. These people are stupid and they can't do anything. And then you yeah, talk to people who are sad. in their 40s and they can't do anything. And you just, I, I kind of think that the America we grew up in is dead. It's not coming back. We're not going to restore it. It's almost like we need a full systemic reboot because I feel like this was all done intentionally. And that's why mm. I love what you're teaching because it is a grounding force because the biggest thing to me with learning wilderness skills is that it takes away your fear. You can take, like, the exactly. only thing I fear is, you know, my grandkids or my wife being in a bad situation. You can't scare me. I don't give a shit. I'll walk off in the woods and I'll be okay. And I think yeah. that the, the reason that they're so easy to control today is everybody's afraid. What if they take this away? Yes. What if they do this? What if I can't get that? Well, you know, that's all that it ends up being. Yeah, you're exactly right on that. And I do believe that there has been a somebody realized that the spirit of fear, they could use that and weaponize it. And that's exactly what they've done. When this uh, past stuff came out, you know what I'm talking about. I don't want to say it on yeah. there. But uh, when that came out, my, the, one of the first thing I was hearing all these people, oh, my God, and they were plasticking their house. And I'm like, well, what's the deal here, man? Are you? 
Are you scared to die? Because I'm telling you, it happened to me, and it wasn't that bad. It was. It really was actually peaceful, and you know, what's the deal? You're scared to die. Just get on with your life. If you get sick, you get sick. If you die, you die. If you don't, see, because what it's doing, it's taking away their focus, where they're so worried about, well, I need to do this and this and this, you know, and they're just duh, 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 back and forth. And you know what's happening? They're not out there busting the ground and they ain't planting their peas for when if something does happen in the summertime yeah. or the wintertime, they're not going to have any food. And what are they going to do? They're going to turn around and try to blame somebody else or they're going to want their big daddy government to come in and give them something to eat. And I'm sorry, but that is just not the way it's supposed to be. We were not given a spirit of fear. We were not given a, a spirit of fear. You have to get over that mess and just get on with your life. You, you're worrying about something you ain't got no control over, like that Ukraine mess. You ain't got no control over that. Them high up people, they're going to do what they want to do. And it ain't a dang thing we can do about it because we the poor folk and we're going to be where? On the front line. You're going to be on the line because their kids ain't going to be there. I watched y'all yesterday on that deal, and, and yeah. I was right along with it. I was right along with it, man. Uh, you, you can't have this fear. No, not yeah. at all. And the whole Ukraine thing, like, these people talking about they stand with Ukraine, they put a Ukraine flag in their profile or whatever. Like, you aren't doing anything. And I think that's it's it's worse than people not being capable of doing anything. People have become convinced doing meaningless things matters. It's meaningful. Right. You right. saying it's, stand with Ukraine actually helps Ukraine in any way. Right. Like it, it literally does absolutely nothing. But when somebody else won't do it, you're angry with them because you've been convinced in your little tiny mind. Right. Your little tiny closed mind that this is actually what's important. It, it's turned it's turned politics and all things encompassed in politics into a religion. Right. They've turned science into a religion. What you say is more important than what is. Right. And what you say is more important than what you do. And people believe this. And it's it's another reason I think like, you know, we've talked a little bit about kind of the criminal element. I guess you worked as it sounds like you worked as prison guard for a time or something like that. Um, but some of the most effective rehabilitation that I've seen in young people is taking them out in the woods. You know, where yep. they, they, they hike them and they make, they teach them how to survive in the woods and all because it pulls you out of this bullshit fake ass world. Because right. you're trying for something simple, simple skill to learn, really, if you learn to do it right, is a friction fire. Unless, you know, somebody was a dick to you at an event and soaked your baseboard in the water without telling you. Other, you know, if that wasn't done, <laughs> did that. It was pretty funny. And this was a guy that had like yeah. a world record for the fastest hand drill fire. And one of his buddies soaked his baseboard <laughs> overnight, like with a, with a rock on it in the bottom of a bucket. And set it out in the sun for like half an hour before he was going to do his demo so that he didn't know it was done. So unless that's done, it's not a hard thing to do. But if you do it wrong, if I tell you your baseboard needs to be thin so it doesn't turn into a heat sink and you ignore me, that baseboard and your spindle, they don't give two fucks, right, about your emotions or the way you think it should work. There's no cheat codes for our video gamers, right? You either do it right. Or it doesn't work. When I was teaching my grandson to shoot a bow and he didn't want, I'm trying to tell him and he doesn't want to listen. And every time he goes to pull the bow back, you know what happens. The arrow comes off the rest and it points this way, right? Yep. And until you listen, there's a way to do this thing. There might even be two ways, but there's not 50. 
And if you're picking one at random, you're picking one of the 48 that ain't going to work. And I think there's so much value in our youth learning these things because it it doesn't care. I think and you can take that to not just bushcraft skills, but like gardening and stuff. If you don't water the plant, it dies. Yep. If you plant the seed too deep, it doesn't grow. Right? I think all these things yep. fit together like that with our youth that there are things in the world that don't care about how you feel and no one's going to come fix it for you and you're going to have to learn how to do it or it's not going to happen. There's no wizard. Yeah. There's no WYSIWYG. You just got to learn to do it. Yep. You know, and, and something else I've noticed, uh, you know, and men, I mentor uh, several younger people, you know, that if they come here and they see what I'm doing and they show a a value interest in it, like they, they you can tell, too, because you'll have a couple standing around and they're bullshitting and looking on their phone. But you're going to have one or two, man, that are just glued and fixated and they're watching everything you do and they have their mouth shut. And those people, and they'll come, they'll contact you and say, Hey man, how did I do this? And so I'm like, Hey, come over, whatever, you know, and I'll show them those people I will, but you'll get these people that have seen a YouTube video. And then when you ask them about something, then they say, I know. And I say, no, you don't know. You understand the principle. You yeah. don't know to know something like to biblically. To know something or know someone is to be part of them. So you're not part of them. You are just watching a video. Now you understand the principle, but you have not practiced the art or the technique to achieve the goal, the desired goal. So you don't know it. When you build it and you make a fire in the rain and go get all your tinder and everything and come back and you make a flint and steel fire and you get it going in the pouring rain, then you know. Because you have merged with that and you know. But I think it's some type of psychological uh, barrier there that they've created with this false sense of security or false sense of knowledge where they, they think that viewing it on YouTube or reading it or whatever is actually knowing it. That, yeah. That's not true. You, you have well, to practice. They're, they're tested that way, too, right? So you go to school, you learn a thing. Yeah. Supposedly, yeah. you don't know it, but you learned it, right? And then you write it down on a piece of paper, you tick the right box, and you get an A. So that 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 has led to that mentality. And the video games had to have, too, where, you know, kids really good at basketball and what he means he's good at NBA jam or whatever, right? Like, I don't – I've never been a video game guy since I was probably, like, 10 years old, I used to play video games with Atari. That's how old I am. But the one game I, I played with some of my sales reps, because when you're in sales, you do what your reps want to do, was a game called Golden Tee Golf. And it, this thing is networked even back then. It's 20 years ago, but they had you could see scores all over the country with it and all. And they would play for money, and I'd play with them because I lost to the companies paying for it anyway. Turns out I'm a badass at Golden Tee Golf. Do you know how well I play golf? Not at all. I can't hit a ball. Like, if I want to hit a ball that way, I try to hit it that way so it'll hook over there, right? Like, the correlation between a video game and the real world is absolutely zero. But I could beat all these guys at this stupid video game with a ball in it. And I actually thought it was kind of fun because it was cool looking. But I think that's, like, if you grew up with that and that's all you ever knew was being judged on what you write down and playing video games – 
And some of these kids have never even shot a basketball at a real hoop, but they're good at NBA Jam or whatever. And now we call it sport. We actually, and I don't mean to put anybody down because some of those people are really talented. They play for money and they do it professionally. But so that's become what, like when you were a kid, if you played football, you know, like at my age, you probably want to grow up and be Joe Montana, not some kid sitting in a recliner with a controller. And now we have a whole generation and I'm not saying all of them, but like that's, that's an ethos. Like I wanted to grow up yeah. and either be Joe Montana or a freaking astronaut. You know, like, and I just don't yeah. think kids yeah. think that way anymore. You know, another thing I've noticed, um, whenever it's my boys, you know, I had three boys and, you know, and there was Call of Duty and Madden football and all these yeah. different things. Uh, so I'm sitting there watching them and I'm observing and evaluating this and, and looking at everything because that's how my mind works in nature is to evaluate, look, you know, and see, make the, make the connections. So what I looked at and I, I came up with, and it turned out to be pretty well, you know, right on the money was I think that these video games, they are, they are training a, I think they are, they may be training a whole entire generation that will sit in a cubicle somewhere and run an autonomous soldier in another part of the world because now you can look at the Xbox controllers and stuff. That is exactly what they are using over there to fly little drones and use, uh, you know, like bomb robots and stuff. They're using the exact same layout of those buttons. And if you've ever watched that movie Ender's Game, it was it. I just happened to watch it. Didn't know nothing about it, nothing, but it got intriguing. And it had all these people in this giant spaceship and they were all on these virtual reality headsets and they were all flying some type of little ship to, you know, to perform the act of war. And when you see with stuff with Boston Dynamics coming out with these kind of robots, yeah, it's, there's a certain sense of AI, but they're always going to have a human in the loop. So what better way than to sit them in a cubicle put them in a virtual reality, get them trained to that virtual reality now where they have to pay for it and then utilize that situation and, and that uh, skill set with an autonomous, you know, a robot somewhere else that's being, because right now we have drones on the other side of the world that's being run yeah, by somebody. We talked about that yesterday. People are sitting in Colorado or Maryland and they're bombing people in, in, in Africa and they don't have yep. any emotional connection to the act that they're taking at all zero and i mean that's always yeah, been totally. the, the military always trains you to be that way as best they can but it's you still if you're a human on a battlefield you have the connection but you know that's why you shoot at a target that looks like a human but it's just a silhouette that's why they train you to do that and they train you to yeah. knock that target down at 300 meters and then all you care about is the target went over and they want you to make that connection the other thing you're you're hitting on there though is it's not just about that. It's this whole virtual reality anyway. Like they're, they're getting people conditioned in their minds already to think that they need to pay for stuff in the metaverse, right? It's not real. Right. It's How not wild. people are going to buy shit in this fake alternate reality and they're going to do it, dude. They're going to do it. And, and, and if you can. You know, you want to talk about bread and circuses. We got a whole new level of bread and circuses. If you can start, you know, 
hey, you know what, we'll give you free shit in the metaverse this month instead of a STEMI check, right? Like, and I know it sounds stupid, yeah. but they're going to do it, and it's going to work. Yeah. Yeah, that, that just blows my mind, dude, that somebody would pay for something that doesn't exist with money that exists yes. in, uh, in other forms, but they're using that money to buy something that doesn't exist for real. Yeah. That blows my mind. Yeah. yeah. The sword of Azeroth or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, dude. It's a trip, man. It really is. So pulling back into this so we can wrap over here near toward the end of an hour now, you, we, your, right. your stuff is really focused a lot on kind of the bushcraft stuff and all. What are your thoughts, though, on the importance of, like, homesteading, right? Like, I have a place that I live. I don't want to always have to go out in the woods for things. Yeah, that's that's what I have here, man. It, it's it's a homestead. I started I started this about twenty about twenty four years ago, twenty three years ago, uh, and I started with nothing here, man. This was this place that I've got. Uh, it was there was nothing here, no structures, no dirt work, nothing. It was just growed up woods, whatever. And little by little, I've worked over that time and designed my place all to work with itself, so which is what they call, you know, permaculture now, mm -hmm. uh, have everything that, that fits with everything else, uh, use the slopes, use the ponds, all that stuff to, you know, get my water going and, and uh, do my plants. Animals, you know, make the fertilizer for the, for the garden, uh, all the clippings and everything, the biomatter goes into the compost. It's all a self-sustaining thing. That That's my whole deal is to, is, is to have as little outside input that I have to spend my money on. Therefore, I get to keep more of my money. I can take care of what I need, my family and stuff. And, you know, extended family is growing more and more uh, as we have grandkids and stuff. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. So also, what are your thoughts on networking and having like a skill-based network? Because, no matter how good you are, there's stuff you are not great at. Like no matter, and there's probably some place that you really excel. And so even if you can do another thing, it might be better that you go and do your excellent thing for your buddy and he does his excellent thing for you. He might be that guy that's really talented at re rebuilding the carburetor. I can do it, but I don't like it. I was a, I was a mechanic in the army and it made me not want to be a mechanic ever again. Like two years <laughs> yeah. my ass on giant trucks in the jungle. I'm good. I don't even change my own freaking oil anymore. And I think it's good to have that network. The other side of it is that um, there are times when even if you can do a thing, you can't do it for now. I know you've dealt, you told me you've dealt with some physical injuries and stuff. Um, this last fall, I popped my left Achilles tendon. And that's, that's a serious injury. And fortunately, it was something that could heal on its own. But it was about a three-and-a-half-month recovery. And there was a lot of things that were easy for me to do the day before that that got kind of hard to do the day after that, right? So, like, yeah. what are your thoughts on building that network of people, especially everything's of networking now. We talked about the virtual. Like, you know, if somebody's in your network and you're in Texas or in Pennsylvania, that's great, and they probably can help you with some things, but they can't come over to your house and hang out. Exactly. Uh, we, we, have, we, have net, we do that network. We, we have people, uh, they have certain skill sets. Uh, you gotta have in your tribe, you know, some people call it tribe or network, whatever. You have certain people that have their profession, 
Uh, they know more about that than you do. So you let them, you delegate that part of it to them. Uh, everybody helps everybody. But when it comes down to, you know, you've really got a serious medical problem, you want that doctor there. You know, you don't want me getting a 12 gauge black powder shell and <laughs> carterizing you. I mean, if we're on the, if we're on the battlefield and that, you know, yeah. that's the only thing that can save you till I get you back somewhere. Well, I'm going to light you up, buddy. But yes, yeah, the networking is very, very important. Uh, cause it, you know, the whole village has to, has to work together. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's very important. Yeah. I, I completely agree. Enough, I've been fortunate enough to, uh, to get with like John Willis. Uh, that was just a wild happenstance kind of thing, you know, and I've never actually even met John in person, but we, you know, we talked back and forth and, and, uh, the guy really, I was in a bad way, man. Cause I had, I had serious, you know, those gunshot wounds, man, they had me down. And, uh, I was at this point where I was a really dark place in my life. And I was like, all right, all right, God, you got to heal me or kill me. Cause this sucks. Uh, I can't do this no more. And, and I was talking to John one day and he goes, nobody, he goes, what? Nobody, nobody cares. You got to get up and do it or die. You know, I mean, it was just yeah. like that. Yeah. And I go, you're, you're right, yeah. dude. You're right. And that was one of the, that was a defining moment in my life was when I uh, started getting back. And then I ended up getting broke ribs three different times, seven, eight, and nine on my right side. Couldn't hardly take a breath, so that made exercising hard. And then I got with uh, that 75 hard challenge came along when I when I first heard about it. So I tried that. I went 11 days, screwed up. Then I went 35 more days and screwed up and had to start all over. And so at that point, I said, "Look, dude, where is that? Where's that meat eater that used to be in here, man? Is he gone? Are are, are you through? No. Get your ass up." get focused on this and do it. And then I started doing it. It became a lifestyle. And then I looked up and it, you know, it's 75 days without messing, you know, messing up or whatever. And I got, and it was like 72 or 73. And I'm like, dude, you're almost there. Don't screw up now. Don't start celebrating. And then the next time I looked up, it was 77 and I've ended up and I've lost 92 pounds over a year and a half, 92 pounds. I've increased my, my rough time. Uh, moving, push-ups, pull-ups, all that stuff. I can't do a sit-up because that MRSA virus ate my uh, abdomen, my abdomen muscles. Oh, so that that creates a that creates a whole different thing. And you're talking about networking. Sometimes you don't have a network, so you have to be able, able to use your ingenuity and build something where you can unload a three-quarter sheet of plywood because if you've ever unloaded a three-quarter sheet of plywood, that's heavy. It's heavy. And you can't, yeah, with no abdomen muscles, you mm. can't use them. So you have to build something to get that out of your truck and then move it around, get it to the table saw, cut it into smaller pieces that you need where you can work with it. So it, it, it brings on a whole different skill set. And I tell people that are disabled, do not give up. Because you are still alive and you are still here for a reason. Start using the brain you have and start figuring this out. Because John Willis's shirt, no one cares. That that's the best one. Uh, that is that's my favorite one. No, no one, one cares. cares. Work do, harder. Do it yourself. That's no it. No one cares. Work harder. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right, man. Work harder and sleep faster. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, you know. But I, I love John. He's he's been good to me since I started this back in '08. I mean, that's a while. Um, and he's just that guy that he seems to. He seems like a complete hard ass, and he knows when to be a hard ass. But he, I've I've seen him mentor so many young men, and he knows when to be a hard ass and when to be a little bit softer. You know, he's always gonna look like a hard ass, but he 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 knows right. how to balance that. It's something I've. I'm really good at the hard ass part. I've struggled with, and my grandchildren are, are my best teachers on this, teaching me to know when to be softer. You know, you got to be a little softer when you're talking to a five year old girl. You, you got yes. to pull it back. I can't yep. be softer yep. spherical when I'm talking to a five year old girl. You know, um, exactly, man. What I like so, about John, it what I like one thing I like about John, he is genuine. Oh yeah, that's that's real. He's real. Yeah. That's I don't is. like fake people. I don't like fake yeah. people. I like somebody that's that's you. What you get on Monday is what you get on Friday. They're they're the exact same, you know. And if you don't like it, get get hit the road, Jack. I, I've been teaching people to be that way if they're going to be online and be a personality or anything for for from since the beginning. And I'm glad it's what I did because it makes you immune to cancel culture. Like the whole cancel culture thing. Go ahead. I you're not going to tell anybody. That, that I'm doing business with already anything they don't know. Like there's nothing you mm-hmm. can do. It, go, go for it. They, spell my name right when you go on a Twitter mob, you know. Because uh, <laughs> yeah. if John was, you know, more of a conventional business, even building the same gear, by now some shit would have came out and he would have got attacked and he would have lost some contracts or something like that. But by just selling to whoever wants to do business with him based on who he is, go ahead. He doesn't give a shit. I don't give a shit. It's 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 wonderful. On that though, we had a great yeah. discussion here. Um, for people that don't know who you are and would like to learn more about you, can you tell people like about your YouTube channel and stuff like that as we wrap up? And I'll make sure there's links in the show notes as well. Okay. Yeah, I've I've got a YouTube channel. It's called Survival Tips and Other Stuff, and that's entirely too much to type out. So I'm I'm shortening it down to uh, STOS. Uh, but that I really just came out with the YouTube stuff. Not 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 really too long ago, I had a my kids actually started a Facebook page called Survival Tips and other stuff, and that's really where it started. Because um, okay. my my nephew was in uh, in Houston when when the uh, hurricane hit, and he didn't think he was going to have any water. And I'm like, Bud, you got a hot water a hot water heater. You can just take it, you know, hook a hose to it, and you can get the water out of that. So that's where that came from, and. uh then I've also I do artwork. I'm an artist, and that's artwork by Dino. That's that's a name my mom uh, called me when I was little, and uh, so I, I've signed all my artwork Dino for you know fifty something years. So I just kept that instead of going cool. over. Well, I'll take the links that I have here in your uh, app to be on the show, and I'll make sure they're in the show notes. And dude, I appreciate you being with us today. It was a fun conversation. <laughs> All right, Jack, I appreciate being on your show, man. Have a good day. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview. If you did, remember, one of the ways you can really support us is joining the Member Support Brigade. You get discounts that help pay back your membership fee to you, and most people end up profiting on an annual basis off their discount in the MSB. Uh, you can learn more about the MSB program by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. If you enjoy this show and you always want it to be here, becoming a member is the number one way to make sure that happens. But unlike PBS, we give you all those great 
discounts, some additional content, every episode of the show ever produced, available in zip files and some other cool stuff. Uh, so we, you actually get a value-for-value value exchange when it comes to the Members Brigade. Again, the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members to learn more. And you can always do your shopping at tspaz.com to support us as well. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Gonna bail you out or just run you around.